I'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 39. Psalm 39, I cannot wait to share this message with you uh, today. Psalm 39, turn there and we'll get there in just a moment. This morning we come to another of these psalms that we call Psalms of Lament. A lament is an expression of sorrow or an expression of grief. There are these psalms in which David, in a moment of incredible honesty, is just pouring out his heart to God. He's saying, God, this is what's really going on. This is how I really feel. These psalms tend to be a little bit surprising to us. We can't imagine that these would actually get into the scriptures, but they're here and they're real. The truth is, I know what you're thinking right now, if you've been here particularly the last few weeks, saying, Pastor Josh, we just want to thank you. For your just sensitivity to the moment and everything that's going on around us, that in the midst of all of the heaviness, you would choose to spend this fall in psalms of lament. It just feels good, doesn't it? I mean, everything's already depressing. Let's just keep going with it. Uh, But the reality is, I know many of you might find these depressing. I find them incredibly liberating. I find incredible hope and encouragement and confidence in the Psalms of Lament. I am so thankful that God has allowed us to have passages like this. Because what I say to you often is what these passages do is seem to give us what the church doesn't often give us. And that's the freedom to express how we really feel. One of the reasons people often leave the church is because they come into a crisis moment, whether it be something that has happened in their life or a crisis of thought or a crisis of belief and they don't know what to do with it and they don't feel like they can take it to the church and they don't know how to give it to God and so they run. But God has given us these psalms to remind us that those times happen, they're a reality and they help us navigate how to walk through those moments of disappointment, discouragement that are gonna happen in every one of our lives and I'm so thankful for these psalms. Now, I was talking to a friend of mine this week who was saying that he and his wife had gone through a very difficult season of life. And they would come to church week after week, and one of the things hard for them is when they walked in, everybody was happy. And then when they sang songs, all the songs were happy. And then when they heard the sermon, the preacher was happy, and everybody was happy. The problem is they didn't feel happy. And they didn't know what to do with the sorrow that was in our heart because they did not feel happy. This is another reason why God has let us know through these psalms that there is something to do when our heart doesn't feel happy. When we're wondering how to navigate the disappointments, discouragements of life. Now, I'll tell you something. uh, There is no one that enjoys a, a good sad song more than I do. But it is surprising to me that when David wrote this song and he pinned this down in his journal, he looked at this journal entry and thought, you know what? This would make a great song for us to sing on Sunday mornings. And that's exactly what he did. Look at that prescript right there before Psalm 39. To the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. David literally just kind of vented. He expressed all of his thoughts to the Lord. And in my thought, I would say, well, I wouldn't necessarily want anybody to read that. David actually thought the opposite. We should sing this on Sunday morning. So keep that in mind as we read these words. Look at it in Psalm 39. David says, I said... I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Then he says this, I was mute and silent. I held my peace, but to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. And here he addresses the Lord. Oh Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. 
Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil, and man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man, he rebukes for sin. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. The last verse, look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Now, I'm about happiest as I can possibly be if you give me an old Willie Nelson record, a cup of coffee in a rainy day, and just let me just wallow in sad songs. But I can't imagine the Yelp reviews if this is what we sang on Sunday morning. The sermon, B minus. The greeting, it was great. People were nice. But the music was absolutely depressing. I left weeping at church. I mean, you, you just can't imagine David looking at this and saying, I think we should sing this together. But here's the deal. We need this in the Psalms and we need it from David. We need it from a man after God's own heart. A man who God looked at it and said, he's, he's got my heart. Like he has embraced the very heart of God. I love him. He gets it. And from a man like that, we get a psalm like this, where in the midst of a very difficult moment, he just has the freedom to say, God, this is what's really going on in my heart. Now, the context for us is really said in the first few verses. We know that David is suffering because of his own sin. Look at what it says in verses 10 and 11. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Now David is suffering. He's in pain and he's in pain because of his own sin and the discipline he's receiving from the Lord. Now, if you want more explanation on the discipline of the Lord, go back and listen to last week's sermon because we looked at that in length from Psalm 38. What does it mean that we as believers experience in the discipline of the Lord? Let me just clarify again. This is not punitive discipline. It's not God being angry with you and wanting to pour out his wrath and punish you. Because once you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've confessed your sins. You've trusted Jesus Christ's death on the cross as the payment for your sins. You've surrendered your life to him. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His wrath is forever removed. He is eternally for you and not against you. And at that moment, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God in that moment cannot be anything but for you. And he cannot do anything but love you. But it tells us in the gospel that when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we're adopted into the family of God and God becomes our father. And God, who is a perfect, loving, heavenly father, who knows better than you know and knows better than I know, will oftentimes, when he sees us walking in sin, through instructive discipline, do things in our lives to bring us back in the right way. He will see us wandering. And the most unloving thing he could do is to ignore that wandering. And so he will instruct us and bring us back. And that which feels like a painful discipline is actually a loving discipline of the Lord. Now, as we talked about last week, it can be painful, but it's loving and hopeful. And David is experiencing that. 
The consequences of his own sin are real, but the problem is now, because this is kind of set upon his life with some heaviness, David's struggling. David's frustrated. David's asking questions. God, where are you and why are you letting this happen to me? He doesn't really fully know at this moment how to process all that is going on in his life. He's questioning everything. Listen, he's wrestling with unbelief. There's a lot of heaviness in his heart and he's tired of it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had questions? You ever been wrestling? You ever looked at your circumstance and say, God, I know you, but this doesn't make sense. I don't understand how you promised me this, but you give me this. If you've never been there, you've never really walked with the Lord. Because all of us have moments in our life which don't seem to mesh with our belief in who God is and what he says he's going to do. And often that is in moments of discipline when we confuse his correction as anger and wrath. David's feeling the heaviness of this and it's led him to a lot of questions. But even in the midst of that, David is committed to walk with the Lord. Look at verse 1. David says this. I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. Okay, here's, here it is. Listen. David's got questions. He's frustrated. A little bit irritated with God. He doesn't understand what God is doing. But David knows this. That he doesn't need to vent these things in front of unbelievers. Because David, as a man who walks with the Lord, believes that these things do need to be processed. But if he processes these out loud in front of those who don't know the Lord, they're not going to understand. And they're going to get confused. And they're going to need to think that God is not good and God is not kind. And David knows, even though he doesn't feel that way, he knows that it's true. And David is saying, as long as I'm around the wicked, he says, I'm going to put a muzzle on my mouth. And I'm not going to vent these things in front of those who don't know the Lord. Now, this is not the point of the text. But can you just look at the middle of verse 1 there where it says, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. I just, I just want to say this real quick. I, I think that this would be a great verse to maybe put on a post-it note on your mirror or put it on a piece of reclaimed wood and stick it in your living room. I think in the midst of the election and COVID, it might be a good thing for you to remember. Sometimes you need to put a muzzle on it. Sometimes when you start to go open the computer and write something on social media, just put a muzzle on it. Maybe you need to take a greeting card and write it to a friend and just put it right there. Psalm 39.1. So they kind of subtly in a passive aggressive way hear that sometimes you just got to put a muzzle on it. There's a time to talk. There's a time to be quiet. Some of you need to be quiet. He says, I'm going to put a muzzle on it. He literally says, I'm going to put a muzzle so I won't sin by venting these things and leading unbelievers astray. He says in verse 2, I was mute and I was silent and I held my peace. I buried it down here. But look at the next words. To no avail. It didn't work. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me and I mused and the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. Here's what's happening. David's got real stuff going on. He's confused, he's angry, doesn't understand what God is doing. And so he just tries to be quiet. He, he wants to be careful not to vent this in front of unbelievers. So he just, he just tries to bury it. He tries to keep it down. But he says this, it didn't work to no avail because it got hotter in him. You, you, you know this, right? 
it, it, it got just hotter and it burned and it burned and it burned. And you know that, that, that those little kettles we used to use on the stove and you put water in them and you turn on the heat and all of a sudden you know when the water boils because the top comes off and it starts to whistle. You, you know that I was going to whistle, but I don't know how to whistle very well. And the whistle comes and all of a sudden you know that the water is ready. This is what's going on in David's heart. He just puts it in there. He decides I'm not going to let it out. But all of a sudden the top blows off, the whistle blows and he's got to get it out. Now listen, every one of us feels that way at times. Every one of us feels like we've got something here, questions, anxiety, frustration, worry, we don't know what to do with it, and we've got, we've got two options, it seems. One, we can bury it. That never works. It's going to boil, and it's going to come out. The answer is never to bury it, because what happens if you bury it is this. You end up getting bitter. It takes me about 30 seconds to talk to someone in our church or anyone else, and sense that there's bitterness in their heart. You can see it written all over their face. And bitterness not only destroys you, it destroys everyone around you. You bury it, you get bitter. You say, well, I don't have a place to say it. I'm just going to bury it down here. The other extreme is this. You just spew it on everybody. You get home, you spew it. You go to work, you spew it. There's all this stuff here. You don't know what to do. It just seems to start coming out. And David says, I tried to bury it. It didn't work because it always comes out. And then I didn't want to spew it out in front of unbelievers. And so here's the question. What do you do when all that stuff starts to burn? You don't bury it. You don't spew it. Look at the first two words of verse 4. and It'll tell you what to do with it. Oh, Lord. Then I spoke with my tongue. He didn't take it in front of unbelievers. He didn't put it on social media. He took it to the Lord. Now, I don't want this to sound trite. Please hear me. Because I feel like some of you are going to come and say, well, of course you're going to say that. You're a pastor. You take everything to the Lord. No, 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 no. Listen to me. You've got to do something with the questions. You can't ignore them. You've got to do something with the anger, the frustration, the irritation, all of the confusion in your heart. If you bury it, you'll get bitter. If you spew it, you destroy everyone around you. So what do you do? You get alone and you give it to the Lord. You get in your car, you close the door, and you say, God, here it is. This is how I feel. I don't know if this is right. Here's how I feel. You take a walk through the woods, and you just have it out with the Lord. Lord, this is what's going on in my heart. You get away from everybody else. You close the door and say, God, this is what's happening. You take it to the Lord. And listen, when you do it, the most amazing thing happens. This is what we learn from every psalm of lament. When you will take it to the Lord, it is in that moment of honesty with the Lord that the Lord gives clarity. So if you will take the time and feel the freedom to just be honest with God about what's really going on in your heart, in the midst of doing that, you will find clarity. And that's exactly what happens in Psalm 39. You see, some of you have thought that you never could do that. You can't tell God how you really feel. He already knows. He already knows. So tell him. You say, well, if he knows, why should I tell him? Because in the process of telling him, he will give you clarity. Because as you pour out your heart to God, he gives perspective. So what happens to David, he gets honest, he gets real. He tells it to the Lord. And what happens in that moment is God gives him some very much needed perspective for difficult moments. So I want to give you these as the Lord gives them to David. I want to give you some perspective for difficult moments in life. The first perspective God gives him is this. Our life is fleeting. Write that down. Our life is fleeting. Let me just warn you, it gets depressing before it gets good, all right? Our life is fleeting. 
So he says, he talks, look at verse four. He talks to the Lord, there's quote marks there. Oh Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Everything feels hopeless to David. I don't, I don't understand this. I feel hopeless. I don't feel like I have anything. He's venting. When he says, let me know my end, he says, God, I'm, I'm done. I'd, I'd just like to be done with this, to be honest with you. Like, what's the end? What's your game? God, what, what do you got going on? What's the end of this? I just want to know my end. I want to know when this is going to be done. He feels the futility of life when he says there, let me know the measure of my days and let me know how fleeting I am. You have made my days like a few hand breaths. You know what a hand breath is? It's a, it's a type of measurement. It's the width of your hand. It's the breadth of your hand. So a hand breath is, is this big right here. And he says, you know what my life is? My life's like three of these. That's it. Here's zero to 30. He's 30 to 60. Here's 60 to 90. My whole life feels like just three hand breaths. It's small. It seems fleeting. It seems insignificant. And then he says this. He says, surely all mankind st- stands as a mere breath. The end of verse five, he says it again in verse 11. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Think about this. Think about your breath on a cold morning. You walk outside and you breathe and you see a little puff of smoke right there. Imagine trying to grab that. Imagine trying to contain that. Imagine trying to get that to stay for a little bit longer. It can't. You can't grab it. You can't contain it. You can't hold it. It's there and it's gone. He says, God, that's what life feels like to me right now. It's just fleeting. It's just meaningless. I can't, there's nothing to grab onto. There's nothing to hold onto. It's the exact same word that Solomon uses as he begins and ends Ecclesiastes. That word breath is the word for vanity. Solomon begins his book of Ecclesiastes by saying everything is vanity. He ends by saying everything is vanity. And here's why. Because Solomon had every single worldly thing anyone could have to enjoy. Everything. And in every one of them, he tried to grab it like your breath and he couldn't get a hold of anything. And it just, he thought he'd find a little joy here. So he grabbed it and he was left with nothing. So he grabbed this and it was left with nothing. He grabbed this and he was left with nothing. I mean, just, just take a breath. That's it. That one's done. He said, life feels that way. And Solomon knew this from experience, but he not only knew this from experience, he knew it because when he was a kid, his dad wrote a song and made the worship team do it on Sunday morning. That's how Solomon knew it. His dad wrote the song. So he kind of grew up with this idea that there is some vanity to life, that it's like a breath. And then David, I mean, Solomon then ends up experiencing it all. He has everything. And yet he feels like everything he had ended up in nothing. You know, the feeling. You finally get that one thing you think that'll make it better and it's just that breath and you can't grab it. Look what it says in verse six. It says, surely for nothing they are in turmoil, meaning that we have all this anxiety and we do this and we do this and we work hard and we do this and it's just nothing. It, it doesn't seem to mean anything. Look at the end of verse six. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. Meaning you spend all of your life gathering stuff and you don't even know who's going to end up with it. This is the beauty and the tragedy of an estate sale. I love a good estate sale. I have a hard time not breaking for an estate sale. I see a sign that says estate sale and I keep thinking they're going to have an old royal typewriter, which is one of my love languages. I think they're going to have some old LPs or a record player. And I always think they're going to have some. So I go in and the best thing about an estate sale is everything they have is about five cents on the dollar. Isn't that great? But isn't that incredibly depressing? 
Here's someone who spent their entire life getting all of these wonderful things and it's five cents on the dollar. It's just being wholesale to anyone that'll take it. And you don't even know the story. Here's a vase over here and, and a man saved up his money for his fifth anniversary early in their marriage. They didn't have much and he bought a vase for his wife. It's always been real meaningful to them. And here it is being sold for $20, but this guy's trying to get it for 10 He's saying, this is, this is what it's like. You store all this stuff, you don't even know who's going to get it. Early in my ministry, I, I helped this uh, older couple move out of their house they lived in for 50 years. They're moving into retirement home. But before they decided to sell everything, they decided to bring all the grandkids in and let them have first pick. And the craziest thing happened. You're not going to believe this. Their grandkids didn't want their stuff. They said, what about my dishes? You, you said you loved my dishes. I was being nice. I never liked those dishes. So, so they really believed that when they died, everyone in the family was going to fight. Like it was going to tear apart the family on who's going to get the souvenir spoons. And no one wants the souvenir spoons. All the stuff that we collect, no one else wants it. He's saying the futility of spending all of your life getting all this stuff, you don't even know who's going to get it. So here's how David is feeling. David is feeling like, God, what's the point of this? Like there's nothing. I can't find anything to grab onto. Nothing seems to make sense. Nothing seems to bring value to life. And the key is in one little word at the beginning of verse six where he says this. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. You see that word shadow? That's a really significant word. You ever tried to grab a shadow? You, you can't grab a shadow. You ever tried to run down a shadow? You ever tried to hold on to a shadow? Can you grab a shadow and hold on? No, not at all. And David said, that's what life feels like. I'm trying to get it. I can't, I can't get it. I can't get this. I can't get this. It's a shadow. But listen, a shadow only exists because of the presence of something real. If there's a shadow there, there's something real there as well. So the problem is, as David says, what makes life meaningless is the shadows. You're trying to grab the shadow, grab the shadow, grab the shadow. And in so doing, you're missing the reality that exists and that makes the shadow present. So what David is saying is this, my life seems meaningless. It seems frustrating. I don't know what to do with it. But the reality is, it seems meaningless because you're trying to grab the shadows and you're missing the reality. And verse 5 said, it was God who made it that way. It says, behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. God didn't make us for the shadows. God didn't make us for this. He made us for something more. C.S. Lewis finishes his whole series on the Chronicles of Narnia with the last chapter called Shadowlands, in which he says everything on this earth is a shadow land. It is a picture of a greater reality that is going to come. Because God did not make us for the shadows. He didn't make us for the futility of this life. And the reason that life at times feels futile is because you're trying to grab the shadows and you're missing the reality. So in the midst of David venting, he starts to realize, why does everything seem so futile? The reason is, is because it's a shadow of something greater. And he says, oh God, I don't want to miss the reality. Life is fleeting and life is futile, but there is a greater reality. But the other perspective that God gives him is starting in verse seven. Not only is our life fleeting, but our hope is solid. Our hope is solid. So look at his question in verse seven. So he goes to this futility of life and he says, now, Lord, so for what do I wait? What's the point? What am I waiting on? Like, what's better? What's coming? And in the process of venting, this is how it works, the process of expressing his heart, he says this, my hope is in you. He turns the corner. 
He comes to realize that there is something that makes life worth living. There is a promise of something better. That the substance behind the shadow is Christ himself. That Christ is what makes life worth living. And look at what happens. There's a very subtle shift in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Lord, for what do I wait? God, what is it? What's the point? He asks a what question, but he doesn't get a what answer. He gets a who answer. What do I wait? My hope is in you. You see, you know what we want? We want a what answer. God, what's this about? What's the reason? What's this for? What's this for? And the answer is never what. The answer is who. I am the reason. I am the one. What you're looking for is me. And what David starts to understand here is this. The only thing that makes life worth living is Christ himself. There is nothing else to hold on to but that. Everything else will be gone. Everything else is a mere shadow. Nothing makes life worth living. There is nothing that will stand. There is nothing you can hold on to and keep on for all of eternity but Christ himself. And so David comes to this realization that his hope is in the Lord. Christ is the greater reality of the shadows. Well, David has sinned and he's navigating that. He says, Lord, verse 8, deliver me from the transgressions. I don't want to be a scorn for the fool. I'm mute. I don't open my mouth for it's you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me and I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. Now look at verse 11. I want you to look at this. Lord, when you discipline a man, you rebuke for sin. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Now, it took me a while to process verse 11. I want to be honest with you. Because here's what it says. Have you ever, have you ever killed a moth and when you kill it, it just kind of poofs? Like, what was in that? Like, how was that flying? It's just dust. He says, sometimes what the Lord does, I want you to look at this. I'm not making this up. He says, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Let me tell you what the Lord will sometime do in his goodness and his kindness. If you are a child of God, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what God will often do is this. For your greater good, in hopes that you do not miss the reality for the shadow, there are times in which God will take something dear to you and poof. There may be nothing in life more difficult than those moments, nothing more complicated than those moments, and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And the only thing you can do at that moment is stand on the solid hope and the confidence that I am who God said I am, that God does love me, he knows what I'm doing, and I have to trust that in a way I will never be able to process or understand. I hate when someone says to someone, someday you'll understand. Says who? Your hope is not in the fact that you're going to understand. Your hope is in the fact that there's a good God who already understands. If you grab onto the fact, someday I'm going to get it. You'll never get it. You'll never. God has implications of what he does in your life so far more reaching than anything you could ever comprehend. If he tried to download it to you, your brain would explode. So sometimes God does this. He just takes something. But he does it to point us to a greater reality. And we can either run and continue to grab the shadows or we can set our hope upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ and grab the reality. David says, this is what I'm doing. God has taken things from me, but I'm gonna choose to put my hope in the Lord. The last perspective is this. Our life is fleeting, our hope is solid, and our home is heaven. Verse 12 and 13 is really important. 
Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all of my fathers. What he's saying is this. He, he is appealing for God to listen to his prayers, and he's saying this. I, I'm a sojourner. I, I'm a temporary resident. All my fathers were the same. He's not talking about where he lives. He's talking about the fact that he exists for a better place. He exists for something beyond this. So all of us are just sojourning here. We're just guests here. We're not here for very long. We will be somewhere else, whether heaven or hell, for all of eternity. So this is just a moment. He says, just like my fathers, I'm a guest and I'm a sojourner. I'm living as a resident alien. We don't belong here. And he's saying this, that what you have to realize is there is something fleeting and futile about life and you can't grab onto it. You've got to get the substance. The substance is Christ. You're going to hope in Christ. And then you must change your outlook from everything here to make sure you look towards a better reality. There's a new heaven and new earth that God is preparing for those who know him. And so now we begin to turn our mind and our attention, our affections on something that is better. But even though that's true, look at verse 13. You've got to see verse 13. Yes, my home is in heaven. I know that. I know I'm a sojourner here. But Lord, would you look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more? I want you to, I want you to see the beauty of this. David says, God, I know, I know this is coming to me because of my sin. I know that. So I receive it as a gift from a, heavy, a loving heavenly father. I'm going to not grab the shadows. I'm going to hope in you. And I'm going to believe that there's something better. But while I'm here, could I just smile again? You have to have felt that way at some moment in your life. God, could I just, could I just smile? Like, while I'm here, could I just smile again? And the reality is, is God has given us so many good things in this life. Listen, but they're all shadows. So when you, when you have a meal with friends, enjoy it, feast, eat, laugh, celebrate. But it's a shadow of a greater meal that's going to come. Take a walk through the mountains and look at the beauty of the mountains and love it and enjoy it and breathe it in. But it's just a shadow of something that is better. Go to the beach and hear the waves and see a sunset and enjoy it and smile and laugh. Watch a good movie. Do something fun. And God has given us these little glimpses. But listen to this. When you, you know those little moments you have. They don't last very long. They're little moments of just joy. When everything seems right, do you know God puts that in your heart to give you a longing for an eternity of it in heaven? That's why God, he gives you a little something to remind you that if you will hold on and be faithful and look towards something better, God will give you that for all of eternity. Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy. And these little moments that we get, we should enjoy, we should smile, we should laugh, but don't try to hold on to them. Because they go like that. But God says, if you will place your hope and trust in me and hold on to me, you will experience that for all of eternity. And God still gives us taste. But he says this, don't spend all of your time right here. Because this is fleeting. You know, one of the applications for me this week is... I just begin to think about the cultural moment we're in, begin to think about the election that is coming up, and just the anxiety that kind of seems to reside around that. You know, I spent a lot of time a couple of years ago not to preach. I never preached it just for my own benefit. I want to read the Bible and see if Christians should participate in elections or politics. And I tried to find something. I didn't find much, but there was one verse that was compelling. In Jeremiah 29, listen to this. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah the prophet says to Israel, who's living in Babylon in captivity, he says this, I know you don't want to be here. I know this is not your home. I know you belong somewhere else. And I know you're anxious to get home. It's a picture of us as believers. But you're here. So build a house and work 
for the good of the place that I've put you. Seek the welfare of the place I've put you. And I really think that's why this matters. It matters that we vote. It matters that we be involved. There are moral issues at stake. And we want to seek, as believers, the welfare of the place in which we live. But, at the end of November, it doesn't matter who wins, Jesus Christ is still going to be on his throne. And some of you are so worked up and I get all these emails about, Pastor, if, we don't, if the election doesn't go the right way, we, this, this country is going to go in the pits. The country is going to go in the pits anyway. It's going gonna, it's gonna to exist, fail to exist like every other nation in all of history at some point. While we're here, we seek the good. We do what is right. We fight for the things that are right. But at the end of the day, what matters is what we do for eternity. And here's what bothers me. Is that this entire year, eight months in the year, nobody has come up to me and said, Pastor, I'm concerned that we're not seeing enough people saved. I think we need some sermons on evangelism. No one said that to me. No one said, Pastor, what about the unreached people groups? There's billions of people that have never heard the name of Jesus. What are we doing? Would you preach more on that? No one. But I've had 20 people tell me that I need to preach more on the election. And the reality is, in the midst of all of our angst and anxiety about what's going on. It's just a shadow. It is not reality. It matters, but it doesn't matter ultimately. And at the end of the day, Jesus Christ will be on the throne. And the only thing that's going to matter is if you have placed your hope in that and not in this. Because if your hope is based upon who wins in November, you will be hopeless no matter what. There has to be a greater hope. And so we hold on to those things. This is what David is learning. He is learning that the only thing that really makes life meaningful is Jesus himself and every single thing else will disappoint. And the reason we need Psalm 39 right now so bad is we just need a little perspective. You did remind me that life is fleeting, but there's hope to be found in Jesus Christ. So live for him and not for this world. And you do that day by day, getting up in the morning, trusting Jesus Christ, getting in this word, letting him take your eyes off of the things of the world and put them onto him. The only way to stay stable and to navigate the pain of life is to put it in a Christ-exalting perspective. May it be true for every one of you.